Well, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. And we've reached a point in chapter 16 in the Gospel of Luke where we have a couple of statements by Jesus that deserve some detailed focus and attention. And one of those statements deals with the subject of marriage, and in particular, remarriage. So, as we progress on here in the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to do a couple of messages on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But first of all, in light of an event that took place this past week, there's a particular focus that we're going to take regarding the subject of marriage. Past Wednesday, President Obama, the leader of this nation, the leader of this, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, this man who is the most powerful man in the world as the leader of the most powerful nation on earth, said this, and I quote, For me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that same-sex couples should be able to get married. End quote. President Obama said this was the result of the evolution of his views on the subject of marriage. So he now says that men should be able to marry other men, and women should be able to marry other women. This, as we understand, is an unprecedented event in our nation. It is the first time that a president of this United States has ever personally proclaimed, I am in favor of same-sex marriage. One of the main questions I want us to consider today is, is it loving? What President Obama has said and what he endorses, is his view a loving view? Does President Obama truly love those who are homosexuals? Or is what he has said actually unloving? And if so, why would it be unloving? So, first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about this subject. Does love for others and the desire for equality and justice require the acceptance of homosexual practice and the endorsement of marriage between same-sex couples? First, let's go to the Word of God to see what God has to say about this. Look over at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And first we'll look at verse 27, and then we'll turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 26, and the focus is verse 27, but notice what it says here. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, 
male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What do we see here? According to the Bible, God created human beings, and he created them as male and female. He didn't create two men initially. He didn't create two women. He created the male and the female, and he created them both in his image. They reflect him in many different ways. Now turn over to chapter 2 in verse 18, and as we look down through chapter 2, we're going to see the first marriage that ever took place. Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Let's pause there. The first thing God ever said regarding the creation was, it's not good for man to be alone. And so God said, I will create a helper that is comparable, compatible, that's a good match, that's suitable for this man, this male that I have created. Well, God then brought all the animals before Adam, and there was not an animal that was a good match. None of them were suitable as a helper, a companion for him. So what does God do next? The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. The rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. What did God do? He created a companion that was suitable, comparable, compatible with the man. And it wasn't another man. It was a woman. And Adam then covenants with the woman. And we see here the first marriage. When he says, This is not bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And then we have this divinely inspired statement regarding marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Obviously God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. God intended here for the woman to be the companion for the man. And this statement about marriage says a man can join unto a woman, not the two men or two women can join. And we know this is in the context of marriage. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus himself, the very Son of God, Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus quotes this passage word for word in the context of a discussion about marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, in verse 3, 
The Pharisees also came to Jesus, testing him and saying to him, it is, law, or is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So, the original created order of God was for one man and one woman to be joined in marriage. Not for two men, not for two women. One man, one woman. And I would propose then, as we're asking that question, is it loving to believe and to state what President Obama believes and stated? That it is incredibly unloving for any man or woman to declare that same-sex couples should be allowed to marry when God has declared that marriage is limited to one man and one woman. For God is wise beyond measure and he has established what is best for human beings in creating a man and a woman to be joined together in marriage. And in fact, I would propose that it is impossible for same-sex couples to marry. It is impossible. It's not just that we shouldn't endorse same-sex marriage. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Why is that? Who defines marriage? God defines marriage. If we do not say that God defines marriage, that means any one of you out there could define marriage in any way that you want to define it, and that would be marriage. You see? There has to be a universal standard with a universal being who can put universal laws in place over this entire universe and has the authority to enforce those laws. And we know that that is God himself. And so, since God has defined marriage as between a man and a woman, not between two men or two women, then it is not possible for marriage to be redefined. Anything that doesn't match God's mold doesn't qualify as marriage. For example, God defines theft as wrongfully taking something that belongs to someone else. So it doesn't matter if the president or anyone else defines theft as something differently. Since God says that's what theft is, that's what theft is. It can be put in every law book and dictionary in the land that theft is standing in the rain with a bucket on your head or sticking your tongue out at your neighbor or whatever else, but that would not be theft. Because when God defines something, no one else can redefine it. God's definition trumps all else. So, God has defined marriage, and it is not marriage for two men to pledge themselves to one another in whatever way, or for two women to do likewise. 
let's continue to look at what at the scriptures and see what God has to say about homosexual practice. Look at Genesis 19. You've been in Matthew 19. You've been in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1. Now turn to Genesis 19. And we're going to see here a particular city, the city of Sodom. And we're going to see a particular sin for which the inhabitants of this city were destroyed directly by God when fire rained down from heaven. Genesis chapter 19. Beginning with verse 1. There were two angels that had been sent to go into Sodom and to give a report of what was going on there. And it says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him, entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. What was happening here? The men of the city knew that these two angels, who were in the form of men, who looked like men, walked like men, talked like men, had come into the city. These men came out and they demanded that Lot turn them over so that they could have their way sexually with them. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Notice here, Lot knew what they wanted to do, but his response was wicked as well, because notice what he says. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So Lot foolishly says, you can have my two daughters and you can abuse them sexually. Just don't hurt these guys. They've come under my roof for protection. Like his daughters weren't under his roof for protection? <laughs> I mean, you see that he's behaving very wickedly there. But he knows what these men are intending to do. And notice how they respond to him. And is this not the way that people who disagree with what the Bible teaches and what Christians promote? Is this not how they respond so frequently? Look, this guy is making himself a judge over us. You're judging me. You can't judge us. You can't tell us what to do. Judge not, lest you be judged. Those are the kind of things that are thrown out very often, right? But what we're looking at today is what saith the Lord, and then we're looking at what is the loving thing to do. And we're looking at, we will look at, do the other arguments make sense for those who argue as President Obama does. But what happens here? The men reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them, shut the door. 
And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. I mean, do you see the depravity, the wickedness of these men? They wanted to sexually abuse these men. They are struck blind, but in their lust, they are so depraved that rather than seeking shelter, in their blindness, they are groping for the door and they wear themselves out trying to find the house so they can fulfill their, their evil lust. Wow. So what does God do? God pours fire and brimstone upon that city and destroys it. God directly destroys that city in an act of judgment. Now, there are some who claim to believe in the Bible, but yet at the same time want to say that homosexual practice is permissible and it's okay with God. So they have to interpret these texts like we're looking at differently than I am interpreting them. Here's what they say. I want you all to know what the other arguments are, and I want you to know what we should believe about this. So here's what they say. They say when the men of Sodom said, bring out these angels so that we may know them carnally. They point out that the word know in Hebrew is the word yada. And the word yada is used 900 times in the Bible and all but 12 times it means to become acquainted with someone. But then 12 times it means to have intercourse with someone. So they say the sin of Sodom is that the Sodomites were inhospitable to the angels. That they were inhospitable because they, weren't gonna, they were going to treat them poorly. But look at the context. Lot knew what they wanted. And he, he says, see, I have two daughters who have not known a man. It's the same word, yada. He wasn't saying, I have two daughters that have never spoken to a man or become acquainted with a man. He's saying, I have two virgin daughters. Clearly, that's the context here. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter if a word is used 900 times in the Bible one way, but used one time differently in a different context. The context determines the definition of the word. Furthermore, we have a New Testament comment on what was going on here in Sodom. Look over at Jude, little book that is next to the last book in the Bible. And look at verse 7 of Jude. First of all, in verse 6, the context here is speaking about angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness for the judgment of that great day. At Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to what? To sexual immorality. And gone after what? Strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here's what God is saying. There are a group of angels that stepped outside of the boundaries which God had established for them. And they are judged for that. And he said, just like in Sodom, 
these people stepped outside of the boundaries which God had determined. And they lusted after, sexually, members of the same sex. And they were judged directly by God with fire for that. You know, as we consider terminology, there's a word that's not used very often today, but it's a biblical word. It's the word sodomy. Male homosexuals, biblically and traditionally, have been called sodomites. Why? Because the men in Sodom were homosexuals. It's an appropriate biblical term. And it explains well what the sin was. So, consider this. God's wrath always flows out of his love. Because God loves certain things, then he will hate other things. Is that not the way with you? If you love little children, then you will despise the practice of abortion or infanticide. If you love justice, then you will hate it when a judge goes rogue and begins to throw innocent people into prison and acquit the wicked. God's wrath was poured out on Sodom because God loves purity. Therefore, it is massively unloving for any man or woman to promote that which God wrathfully condemns and punishes. You see? So President Obama in his statement, it is incredibly unloving to promote and encourage people in a lifestyle which will bring them under the wrath of God. It is not loving. Consider uh, Leviticus 18 as we work our way through the scriptures. Leviticus 18 and verse 22. It says here simply, You shall not lie with a man, a male, as with a woman, it is an abomination. Saying here that same-sex relationships between men is an abomination. Abomination unto whom? It's an abomination unto God. Now, some people will say, well, that's in Leviticus, that's the Old Testament, that's the ceremonial law, and so that doesn't apply, it's not binding today. There's one big problem with that. First of all, look down to verse 24. Do not defile yourselves with any of... Or no, 23. You shall not mate with any animal to devile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It's perversion. If you're going to say that male homosexuality is okay because that was in the Levitical law and it's gone, then you have to say that bestiality is okay too because it's in the exact same context. And both of these are stated as being an abomination and a perversion. I'm not saying that. I'm just reading it. That's what God says. God says it is an abomination to him when males engage in homosexual practice. And I would propose that if something is ever an abomination to God, it will always be an abomination to God. Because the scriptures say that God doesn't change in his likes and his dislikes. 
He's not like us. He's not fickle. He's not wishy-washy. He doesn't change his tastes. So if God says something is abominable, hateful, abhorrent, it will always be to him. Therefore it is so today, just as it was then. And because of this, it's deeply unloving for anyone to declare acceptable that which God abominates. Do you see that? Deeply unloving. Deeply uncaring. Why? Because those who continue to practice things that God hates will be judged by God because he loves righteousness and purity and he must judge sin. And so it is hateful and unloving to say that it is okay for them to engage in that which God hates. If you have a child that is engaged in a destructive practice, such as cutting or the abuse of substances, is it loving to say, oh, well, that's just their preference, I'm going to let them do that if they want to? No, it's not loving. Because the practice is destructive to them. It's harmful to them. The most loving thing is to tell them that it's wrong. Homosexuality leads to the judgment of God. Therefore, it is unloving to endorse it in any way, shape, or form. New Testament, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and look to verse 23 first of all and we'll read on from there. Romans 1 starting with verse 23. Speaking about a group of people that are worshiping idols and it says they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They created idols. They began worshiping the creature rather than the creator. What does it say God did? Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So it says God gave them up to something and he calls it uncleanness and the lust of their hearts and dishonoring their bodies. What was that? Read on. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Notice the terminology. Again, I'm not saying this. I'm reading it. This is what God says in his word. Vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature, lesbianism. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one for another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. What's it saying here? It's saying, as a punishment to them for their false idol worship, God gave them over, he let them loose to practice lesbianism and sodomy. Sometimes people will say, well, God is going to judge the United States of America for the homosexual practices and people endorsing homosexual practices. Well, the judgment has already begun. What this passage is saying is that homosexual practice is a judgment of God already. 
when God turns someone over to that type of practice, it is because he is putting judgment upon them. Now, if they repent, they can be saved. And we're going to see that in our next text. But, in chapter 2, God goes on to say, in verse 5 here in Romans, But in accordance with the hardness and impenetrant heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, God God was telling these people, Okay, you want to worship false idols? You don't want to worship me? I'm just going to remove my hand of influence upon you and just let you carry out all of your wicked practices and you are literally storing up wrath. So when I pour wrath upon you in judgment, your judgment will be far worse than it would have been otherwise. And homosexuality is what he turned them over to. You see the seriousness of this, the seriousness. And notice it says that the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. God's natural order for sexuality, as we have seen in the very creation, is man and woman. Not man and man, or woman and woman. This is established as part of the very creation order. Okay? But here's something I want to speak to us Christians about. Here's an argument that we should not use. Okay, you listen carefully. Do not use this argument to speak out against homosexual marriage. Do not argue that because two women in a union or two men in a union cannot have children, that they should not be allowed to get married. Do not use that argument. Can you see why? Does that mean that an older couple that's past childbearing age shouldn't be allowed to marry? If you say that two men and two women, that they can't get married in a same-sex union because they can't bear children, you're saying that somebody has to be able to bear children for them to be permitted to marry. But that would mean that if somebody's infertile, if a woman is barren, she can't get married. She's not allowed to. But God does not teach that. That's against God's word. Okay? So don't argue that because they can't procreate, they can't get married. But here's what this is teaching us. It is teaching us that it is outside of God's natural created order for men to engage in sexual relationship with men and for women to engage in that with women. And the fact of the matter is, is even the reproductive biological compatibility teaches us that as we view that. Okay? So again, I propose that it is mightily unloving for anyone to promote as natural and good that which is against God's design. Final passage of Scripture, you know, next to last in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, Begin with verse 9. What does it say here? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Now it gives a list of persons. This isn't a list of sins per se, but it's a list of people who are characterized by a particular sin. It's saying these people practice this sin. It is their habit. It is their lifestyle. And it's saying these people who practice these sins as a habit, as a lifestyle, justifying them, not repenting of them, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Namely, they will not be saved. They cannot go to heaven. What does it say? What's in this list? And notice this. It's not just homosexuality that's going to keep somebody from heaven. There are many things. As a matter of fact, in a list in Romans, children, listen to this. There's a list of wickedness and it says being disobedient to parents is something that God abhors and it's a wicked practice. If somebody is rebellious and disobedient to their parents as their lifestyle, as their practice without loving God and without repenting of that sin, they will go to hell for that just as much as a homosexual will. A heterosexual who is married and who cheats on his or her spouse and does it without repenting and lives that lifestyle and does not repent and turn to the Lord will be condemned for that sin just as much as a homosexual. A man with a man or a woman with a woman, you see. But notice what it says here. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those that engage in sexual practice outside of a marriage bond, nor idolaters, those who worship false gods, nor adulterers, those who are unfaithful to their marriage covenant, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. There are two words there. In the Greek language, these two words are very, very descriptive. One of them refers to the dominant partner in the male homosexual union, and the other refers to the effeminate passive partner in the male homosexual union. Both are condemned in this. That's how detailed God wanted to be. He wanted to make sure that it is pointed out that it is both parties, both the dominant partner and the passive partner that are condemned. Homosexuality is wicked in and of itself. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice this in verse 11. Notice this. We can't miss this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Homosexuality is not an unforgivable sinful practice. Any more than any other sin is unforgivable. And notice it says, past tense, such were some of you, but God has washed you, you're cleansed, you're justified, sanctified in the eyes of God. But notice this, past tense, such were some of you. Homosexuality is not genetic. It is not something that cannot be changed. God says that such were some of you. Sodomites. Homosexuals. But now you are not. And there are many who can testify out there to that very thing, who have been saved, the Lord has transformed them, and they are now married to a member of the opposite sex, and they are not engaged in any homosexual practice. They can be saved, they can be redeemed by the power of God. The power of Christ in the cross overcomes any type of sin. Glory be 
because we are all wicked. Every single one of us here have committed sins worthy of damnation by God. But if we believe in Christ truly and love Him and live for Him, we have been redeemed. What glorious news is this? It is unloving not to tell people that good news. It is unloving to promote a practice which will keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. You see? It's just as unloving as not telling someone who is an adulterer that they better knock it off and quit adulterating and be faithful to their spouse for the glory of God. Or telling a thief, you've got to stop stealing and you've got to start giving. So it's immensely unloving what our president has said. He cares not for the souls of those people. He has a misguided and unbiblical view. This is not true love. It's not true love. Well, finally, I want to um, consider one more passage. Then we're going to look at two arguments that are used to promote homosexuality, and we'll see if those are false or true. We have seen that homosexuality is declared by God in the scriptures to be immoral, abominable, vile, and unnatural. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says this. Hebrews 13 verse 4. And listen carefully to these words. And consider that God has said, as we have read in his word, that homosexual practice is immoral, abominable, vile, and unnatural. Notice what it says here. It says, marriage is honorable among all. And the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Notice this. Marriage is honorable And the bed, speaking of the marriage bed, speaking about sexual relationships within the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman, it is undefiled. It says that marriage is honorable. It says it is not immoral, abominable, vile, or unnatural. It says the marriage bed, sex within the bonds of marriage, is undefiled, not immoral, abominable, vile, or unnatural. So marriage is good. Sex in marriage is good. Therefore, homosexual union cannot be marriage ever because homosexual union and homosexual sex is declared as immoral, abominable, vile, and unnatural. Do you see that reasoning? That's what the Word of God teaches. Now, did you watch the interview with President Obama? ABC News, Robin Roberts, interviewed him in the White House. It's a little over seven minutes long. If you watched it, did you listen for his arguments as to why he's changed his views? Or his views have evolved, we should say, as he put it. I'll not put words into his mouth. As he says it, that his view has evolved to this point. Did you, have you heard any of his reasoning? Here are two things that I picked up on. One, he has a couple little girls, right? He said, my girls can't see the difference between 
our family and the family of their friends who have homosexual, gay is the word he uses, parents. And he says, that's the kind of thing that really makes you think and makes you change your position on issues like this, okay? So here's the argumentation. My little girls can't really tell the difference. Therefore, I should follow their lead and promote this practice. We did a a men's Bible study, and one of the men at this study said, he said, okay, so if my kids decide that eating fecal matter is acceptable, then I ought to go ahead and follow their lead. And he said, let me get this straight. President Obama is saying that the most immature, generally most immature, least socially developed, generally least scripturally and spiritually knowledgeable people among us should lead us. And we should follow their lead. You know, in the scriptures, God actually promoted a condemnation upon Israel in that he said, women and children lead you. Those were God's words. That you are being led by children. I hope you can see that that argumentation is very flawed. Do you follow your children in whatever they lead? If they look at someone and say, hey, that doesn't look bad to me, you can say, well, that's the kind of thing that really makes me change my opinion. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Hey, I remember when I was a kid and did all kinds of crazy things. I'm glad my parents didn't follow my lead. All right, here was something else he said. He promotes to be a he claims to be a Christian. And so he said this, Jesus died to free us. He didn't say Jesus died to save us from our sins, or Jesus died as our substitute on the cross so that we could be made right with God. It was basically Jesus died to free us. And he says, but the golden rule says that you're to do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Therefore, Since I want people to let me marry who I want to marry, this is my speaking now. This is a conclusion. This is what his argument is saying. Since I want people to allow me to marry a member of the opposite sex, basically whom I want to marry, someone I love and who wants to marry me, therefore I should, and the Bible teaches, Jesus teaches, I should allow same-sex couples to marry whom they want to marry, namely an opposite, a member of the same sex. Now, first of all, is that what Jesus meant in any way, shape, or form, or is that a misuse of the scriptures? We've just seen all the scriptures that promote here very clearly, right, that homosexuality is vile, abominable, unnatural. That's what God says about it. Jesus is God. Okay? I would propose this as a gross and a very obvious misuse of the scriptures. Jesus is speaking proverbially when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In general, we should do to others what we want them to do to us. But, since God hates and forbids homosexual practice, then we should not condone or endorse homosexual practice. For anyone to do so is actually unloving. It's actually unloving as we've already pointed out. So consider this. If he's going to be consistent, and if President Obama's going to be consistent, 
What if he as a father desires for his children to obey him? Does that mean he's got to obey them? What about, what if he as the nation or the leader of this free nation desires for people in this country to obey him, that he has charge over? Does that mean he has to obey them? You see, the way he's applying this, the golden rule would mean exactly that. It's reduced to absurdity when it's used in such a way. And it's not loving. What he is promoting is not loving. It is very unloving. Well, let's let's look at a couple of the other main arguments that are used to promote so-called homosexual marriage. Because remember I said it's not marriage. It can never be marriage. Because God defines marriage. I'm going to draw here from an article written by Valerie Henson. She's a uh, Yahoo News contributor. The article is entitled Ethical Arguments for Legalizing Gay Marriage. That's her terminology. Her first argument is an argument from human needs. Here's what she says. All human beings have certain needs they should not be denied. While views differ on exactly what these needs are, a commonly accepted model is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This model says that most basic human needs must be met before other needs can be met. For example, physiological needs come first. If you are unable to eat, nothing else would matter to you as far as needs at that time. Once physiological needs are fulfilled, humans need to feel safe. And this goes all the way up to self-actualization and transcendence. And here's what she says. In between safety and esteem needs are love and a sense of belonging. This can be viewed in many ways. Humans could need the love of their family and friends. This could also be viewed as the human need for meaningful and sexual relationships. If heterosexuals meet their needs for love by marrying someone of the opposite sex, and homosexuals cannot marry, are we saying as a society that we do not want homosexuals to meet this basic need? And here's her conclusion. It is unethical to not allow part of the population to meet this basic need for love just because the person they want to marry is of the same sex. Now, let's talk about where that argument leads. I'm going to sum the argument up. It goes like this. Human beings have basic needs that should not be denied. Two, one of these is a need for meaningful and sexual relationships. Three, heterosexuals meet this need by marrying a member of the opposite sex. Four, it is inconsistent and unethical to allow part of the population, heterosexuals, to thus meet their needs without allowing the other part or another part of the population, homosexuals, to meet their needs by marrying a member of the same sex. Do you see where this leads in this reasoning? I'm going to play what we generally call the devil's advocate, okay? I'm going to follow out her reasoning and see where it leads us. She says that it is unethical. I quote again, it's unethical to not allow a part of the population to meet this basic need for love as defined as love and sexual relationship just because the person they want to marry is of the same sex. Okay, well what about part of a population that wants to marry animals? According to her reasoning, it is unethical to allow one part of the population not to be able to meet their needs And needs, she has defined as whatever they perceive as their sexual needs. So, 
what her reasoning says absolutely necessarily if she's going to be consistent is that it would be unethical to deny the desire, the need of someone who wants to marry an animal it would be unethical to keep them from marrying an animal. What about somebody that wanted to marry a little child? And that's the only way they felt their need could be met. She would have to say that it's unethical to deny them that need. Right? What about somebody that says, my need can only be met by raping someone or by having multiple partners in marriage? You see, for her to be consistent, since she says it's unethical for one part of the population to be denied their need, then it's unethical to deny that to another part of the population. She has to open that wide open. And then anything goes. Because who defines needs? Notice how vague she was? People define this differently, she says. She can't deny those things to anyone else. That's where that logic leads. But what do we know? God has taught us about our needs in the Bible. (laughs) And God has said in the scriptures that he provides everything that we need for life and godliness through his word and through our salvation in him. He not only teaches we don't need homosexual marriage to be fulfilled, he teaches that homosexual relationships, period, are harmful to us because they violate his creation order and his moral will. The argument from needs is very flawed. And it leads to logically opening up to anything that goes. And think about this for just a moment. She, would, she argues at the end of her article that it's absurd to say that that argument will lead to legalized bestiality or marrying of animals or, or marrying young children or polygamy or whatever else. She says it's absurd to think that. And she says that those practices are absurd. Okay, she condemns those practices as absurd. But by what standard? By whose standard? How can she say those are absurd? How can she use words like ethical and say it's unethical or unjust for homosexual couples not to marry and that you can't deny their needs, but why why then can you go and deny the needs so-called of anybody else out there? Basically, she's left it wide open. Now, let me propose this. It is her logic which would lead to that conclusion. If she's consistent, she has to say all those things can go. How about the issue of abortion? Consider this for a moment. For years, those of us who believe that children are created in the image of God, even in the womb, and their lives are protected, have been saying that if somebody argues that you can kill a baby in the womb to be consistent, they have to argue you can kill a baby when it's out of the womb. Because what difference does the environment make? You know, can you, can you kill a man if he's inside the building, but if he's outside the building, you can't kill him? For years we've been saying, if they're going to be consistent, they have to argue that. And for years we've been saying, it's coming, and they will start arguing that. And you know what? That is happening. It was in the news a couple months ago in a very prominent ethical journal that exactly that was taking place. Two men submitted this article to this ethical journal. It was published. 
In this article they said, it is inconsistent to believe that you can abort a baby in the womb but not kill the little child when it's out of the womb. And therefore, since abortion is okay, it's okay to kill the baby. That's what they argued. It was accepted for publication. That's where we're going. If God does not step in and intervene, and if people do not change their argumentation and their reasoning, infanticide will be legalized in this nation, probably even in most of our lifetimes. And it will be legal to kill the six-month-old baby in your arms just like it is to kill the baby in the womb. Because that's where the logic goes. And sooner or later, people usually end up following consistently their own logic. You can't argue that polygamy is wrong. You can't argue that bestiality is wrong. You can't argue that marrying little children is wrong. Or marrying a sister or marrying a mother is wrong. If you argue that homosexuals have a need to fulfill their desires and it's wrong to discriminate against them based on their need. But what about this final argument? You've heard this, right? The civil rights issue. Uh, homosexual push and arguments have been connected to the civil rights movement, which happened in our nation, where blacks were being discriminated against. Wrongfully, wickedly discriminated against. And I'm so glad that those discrimination laws have been overturned. But is it a violation of civil rights to not allow a man to marry a man, so-called, or a woman to so-called marry a woman? I would propose that that's a faulty argument to say it's a violation of civil rights. Our author here says, the civil rights argument says that certain rights such as hospital visitation, medical decisions, insurance, insurance benefits are not equally given to same-sex couples as they are to heterosexual couples. This argument says that denying same-sex couples the right to marry is to discriminate against them and to deny them their civil rights like blacks were discriminated against in America for so long. So you see she's tying it into that issue. First of all, consider this. Blacks were discriminated against because of a physical characteristic and because of their, their ethnic background. They had no choice about it. There was nothing they could do about it. Not only that, it was something that it was easily identifiable by everyone that looked at them. Homosexuality is something that is a practice and it is a choice. Even if someone has homosexual desires, they can choose not to carry out those desires. Just like we can choose, we married men can choose not to lust for a woman that's not our wife, right? So, there's a massive difference in those two things going on there. And it's actually a slap in the face to the blacks who were discriminated against for the homosexuals to try and come in on their momentum and their steam and gain some credibility through those arguments. And there have been many blacks who have stood up and said that exactly. How dare you connect that to the fight that we had? We weren't allowed to sit on the same seat in the bus. We weren't allowed to use the same restroom. 
We weren't allowed to use the same water fountains. When we went into the courthouse, we had to go sit back in the corner and the whites got to sit up here. How dare you say that you guys are discriminated against like we are? None of those things are in place against you. We couldn't hide the fact that we were black. But you guys don't have to tell anybody that you're homosexual. You don't have to wear the piercings such and such a way or cut your hair such and such a way or act out in public that would show this, you see. It's not right to tie it in like that. It is not consistent. But the fact of the matter is, who grants rights? Does the state grant rights? Does the government grant rights? You realize if the government grants people rights, then they can take them away. If the government grants us our right to life, then the government can take it away and they can kill us as they want and they're okay to do it. If other people grant us our rights to life and liberty and such things, then they can take it away. But there's a universal grantor of rights and that is God himself. And when we realize that God grants rights and he has created all human beings and he rules over all human beings and that we have rights based on the fact that we're created in his image, then we know when it is wrong to rule in such matters and in not. Because, consider this, God says homosexuality is not a right. He says it's vile, abomination. He says it can never be marriage when two men come together, two women come together. But he says that members of the opposite sex, man and a woman, in certain circumstances, under certain conditions, they have the right to get married and they shouldn't be denied that right. God determines that and that takes the matter out of the hands of people who would abuse like Hitler abused. Did Hitler have the right to do what he did? If governments can grant rights, then Hitler had every right to do what he did. You see? Well, here's what has happened. We've been crying and crying and crying for rights that aren't actually rights. I have a right to welfare. I have a right to health insurance. I have a right to a government-provided education. None of those things are rights. They're benefits. As soon as we elevate benefits to the level of rights, we're saying then that somebody owes it to me to give this to me. But then we have to ask, well, who says so? Does God say it? Or do you say it? Or do other people say it? You see? Um, George W. Bush, I remember him saying, every child has a right to an education. He meant an education by the state, primarily. You know what? That's not a right. Consider, what would be a right? Every child has a right for their parents to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And if, a, if parents do not bring up their children in the ways of the Lord, they have violated the rights of their children because God says... Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Parents, teach these laws to your children. When you sit down, rise up. When you walk in the way, you see? Alright? God says, you shall have no other gods but me. Therefore, God has a right to be worshipped. If we worship anyone else besides God, we have violated God's rights, and he has the right to punish us for that. God says, children, honor your father and your mother. Therefore, 
parents have the right to be honored by their children. And if their children do not honor them, children within the home, under their authority, they have the right to discipline that child. God says, you shall not steal. Therefore, I have the right and you have the right not to be stolen from. And if anyone violates that right, that they can be punished for that and they should make restitution. God says you should not commit adultery. That means that if you have covenanted with a spouse, you have the right not to be cheated on. God says you should not kill. That means you have a right to life. If someone kills you, they violated your rights. Rights are those things which God says. And as soon as we say no to that, then we're opening the door wide open. And anybody, anybody out there like Hitler can say, well, Jews don't have a right to life, so I'm going to kill them. Who can tell them otherwise? We can only stand up and say, no, that's my opinion. Or that's your opinion, but mine is different. But we can't make any greater appeal. We must appeal to the Word of God. And to you young people, you're growing up in an entitlement society where the young people think that they have, they have a right for everybody to do everything for them. That's just flat out not true. It's not true, right? We should know better than that. We should be careful with that. Health insurance isn't a right. It's a benefit. Nobody has, no, no, there's nobody out there that's compelled to provide health insurance for you. It's a benefit if you can earn it, provide it for yourself. If somebody wants to give it to you and pay, pay you to be able to pay your premiums, that's a gift. It's not a right that has been granted. Okay, we just should be very careful when we talk about human rights. And no one has the right to marry a member of the opposite sex, period. Because God says no. God says no. Well, obviously this uh, lady that wrote this article doesn't agree with me when I present the scriptures. She says, well, what God are you going to believe in? Because there are different gods out there. She says, well, different people uh, disagree on the interpretation of the Bible, so that invalidates it. Well, I would ask, okay, people disagree with you on your views. Does that mean they're not valid? (laughs) That doesn't prove the point, you see, does it? But let me promote this for a moment. If someone is not going to use the biblical worldview that says that there is a God who has created all human beings and they're created in His image regardless of their age or nationality or whatever it may be and that God grants certain rights, if they're not going to argue that, then... What that means is right and wrong becomes relative. It becomes conditional. Right and wrong is based merely on the opinions of people and upon different societies. And so people like that will say, well, truth is relative. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Except when they take up an issue like homosexual marriage and then they'll say, no, but that applies to everybody across the board. You have to follow my way, you see. It's inconsistent in their reasoning. The fact of the matter is, 
unless somebody borrows from a Christian worldview, the view that I'm promoting from the scriptures, they can't use words like ethical, like right and wrong, like justice or injustice. They cannot use words like that and be consistent because they have no basis in their reasoning for any concept of justice. Because justice is simply my opinion or that guy's opinion over there or maybe a group of us get together and it's our opinion over here. But if that's the case, why was Hitler's opinion wrong? And why was Stalin's opinion wrong? And what about Paul Potts and his opinion? What about all of these men with a, with a mass of people behind them that said, we can murder, we can slay, we can imprison, we can do whatever we want to certain groups of people? So here's what it comes down to. Unless you believe in the Christian worldview, you cannot reason properly about anything. <laughs> You can't. It's impossible to reason properly about anything. You can't even you can't even reason properly about gravity. What makes the toothpaste squeeze out when you squeeze the tube? Well, you know, force and equal reaction and you know, gravity makes it go down when it falls out of the tube. Well, how do you know? that it's going to do that when you squeeze it? Well, because it did it yesterday. And it did it the day before, and the day before, and the day before. Well, how do you know you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's not going to do it? How do you know you're not going to wake up tomorrow and the world's going to be upside down and you're floating and there is no gravity and we all go spinning off into space? You don't know. I know. Because God has created natural laws and he has put them in place. And as long as he wants them to be there, they're going to be there. You see, there's reason behind that. Otherwise, it's just, well, I just know, I only, I just know because it, it didn't happen that way yesterday. You see? <laughs> Fact of the matter is, no one can reason rightly unless they borrow from the biblical perspective. No one can talk about morality and say anything is right and wrong unless they borrow from the biblical perspective. If you have any questions about this afterwards, I'd be happy to sit down with you and talk about it. I know it, it can be a pretty complex issue to sort through. But here's the conclusion to the matter. God defines marriage in the Holy Scriptures as a covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. Since God defines it as such, such it is. And it doesn't matter if the most powerful and influential man on earth says otherwise. It matters not if he states in the most powerful nation on earth, but if the states declare otherwise in the nation, what God has defined, no one can redefine ultimately. Consider this, and I was just, I was wrestling with this this week, okay? I was wrestling with this. How would Jesus have approached President Obama? What would Jesus have said? What would Jesus' attitude have been toward the President of this United States? Think about this for a minute. Who did Jesus hammer? I mean, literally, 
hammer? Who did he scald? Who did he call hypocrites and whitewashed sepulchers filled with dead men's bones? Who was it? It was the Pharisees. It was the leaders of the people who had been presented the truth because they studied the scriptures. Those were the people that Jesus spewed out of his mouth. President Obama is the leader of this nation. (coughs) President Obama claims to be a Christian. President Obama was told by one of his spiritual advisors, you are wrong on this issue. You should not promote so-called gay marriage because the Bible teaches otherwise. I can't put words into Jesus' mouth, but Jesus would have spewed him from his mouth. Oh, do you realize how serious this is? But but what about what about your neighbor who is a lesbian? What about the people that you encounter at work that are homosexual? What about those people that they don't have the word of God? They haven't had it presented to them in detail. What about them? Love them. Love them. Lead with love in your actions toward them, first of all, even. If they need help, help them. If you can uh, help them mow their lawn when they're sick, do it. Show that you care about them, that you don't want them to live in a destructive lifestyle that God condemns. Lead with love in your actions, but then love them by speaking the truth to them. It's not loving to say you're okay and we're all okay and we're all in a big happy family and everybody can do whatever they want. No, because God will condemn. If you do not repent, love them. That's true love. Not what our president has done. He has despised them, ultimately. He has done that which is harmful to them. Love them for the glory of God.